So is there a God? If so, what is God like? And who are we? How are we to live? These are most important questions, and yet rarely do we give ourselves time to slow down and really think on such crucial matters. One of the things we do most every time we gather as a church is to look at the Bible and see what it has to say, which is really a gift. Even if you are watching as one who doesn't buy into the Bible's message, its pages cause us to think on these most important questions, and that is a good thing for all. Does God exist? Is not a question the Bible addresses directly. And perhaps this is because it is largely written amidst cultures that believed in gods. The Bible is more focused on what the one God it proclaims is like, and this is its priority. If we get God right, we'll get who we are right, and subsequently, we'll know how to live right. So what is he like? God. Read its pages, and you will see that the Bible presents God to us in both statement and story. God is love, is a statement. Jesus washing the disciples' feet before his crucifixion is a story demonstrating that love. Statements give clarity and they sharpen. Stories enlarge our thinking, draw our whole selves into the understanding because they touch on both our mind and emotions. In Exodus 34, God himself tells his leader Moses what he is like at the core of his being. They are statements in the form of adjectives of being and adjectives of activity. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The story we call the gospel, from Genesis to Revelation, fleshes all that out. It is the accumulation of all the smaller stories which, although written over a span of like thousands of years, they are remarkably consistent to show us the one glorious, unchanging God. Statements, story, little stories woven with diversity to make one unified story that is progressing through history to where we are now with loads of promise towards that which is yet to come. And in this way, Christianity addresses and fulfills the cry of every human heart, a meaningful existence that is not lived on an exhausting pursuit on a hamster wheel, but living as a part of a progression towards better. Last week, we focused on the most important chapter of this biblical story, Easter, Jesus' death and resurrection. Without this, the whole story fails. But with Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we get the clearest revelation of what God is like and what he, will, what he will continue to be like as we read on. Today we're going to look at a story that happened soon after Jesus rose from the dead. It will inform our understanding further. First, our understanding of God, which leads to a better understanding of ourselves and how we're to live, live that out. So what is God like? John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, 
do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with the fish laid out on it and bread. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. What we see in him is what God is like. He took on humanity. He died. He rose from the dead. And this story in John 21 is prior to the ascending, his ascending to God the Father, and to the Father's presence to sit at his right hand in the place of authority. Before he does that, Jesus has some final things to impart to his disciples. Jesus is not with his disciples constantly. He has appeared to them twice, and this is going to be the third time. The disciples were told to go to Galilee where Jesus would meet them. But maybe it didn't happen fast enough, according to Peter's perspective. I'm going fishing, Peter says. Now, there's nothing wrong with fishing per se unless God wants you to do something different. And people debate whether this was a bad thing for Peter to do, given what Jesus had called him to. It's hard to say. But this is where we find Peter and the rest as they follow his lead. And now Jesus enters the scene. He is intentional. A number of years ago, I was downtown Vancouver for, for a business meeting, and we had finished our meeting and walked outside and near the city courts of downtown Vancouver. A crowd was gathering there, and as we moved to get close to see what was going on, I realized, like, this is our prime minister. And I wanted to get closer, but I couldn't. He was protected, guarded. From a political perspective, I was a person of no consequence, and he was a man of great power. The Bible reveals God to us as all-powerful, and yet, in Jesus, God draws near. He is the one who intentionally moves closer to us. Without his intention, we would be stuck far from him with no way to approach. And again here, Jesus shows us how intentional towards us God is. It says the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. If Jesus wanted to conceal himself, he could have, but he makes the move. Got any fish? No. Despite the fact this was their craft, this is what they were so good at. The fish weren't cooperating until Jesus. Cast your net on the other side, and it becomes a revelation. It is the Lord. It is an amazing scene. Jesus, who is orchestrating it, has set it up by making a fire, meaning he had to collect wood, get it going. He has spread fish on it. He's got bread baking. Smell the aroma of smoke and fish and bread. And through story, we see God is intentional and that he cares. His care is practical. The disciples have been fishing in the night. It's hard work. They most likely had not packed food. And Jesus makes them breakfast. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says that he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There are angelic beings and smoke and the foundations of the temple shaking from God's voice. Isaiah becomes completely undone in the terror of it all. Do you have room in your mind for understanding God in this way? And here, we have the risen, all-powerful God making his disciples breakfast. 
Do you have room in your mind for God in this way? The right picture of God is not either or, but both. We are encouraged in Scripture to look to God for our daily needs. And Jesus taught us to pray that way. Give us this day our daily bread. And yes, there's probably more beyond the physical that Jesus has in mind, but it is certainly not less. Jesus had said to his disciples previously, Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? The all-powerful, holy God is intentional towards us. He cares. He cares about our whole being, and that caring leads to serving. Some of you know that my youngest daughter is getting married soon. I'm stoked for her because the man in her life is one of the most caring, serving people I've ever met. I mean, the sad part is he's a better golfer than I am, and I'll get over that or I'll, I'll get better. But as my daughter was thinking through her relationship and the possibility of getting married after writing a book on singleness, wanting a little advice from her dad, we were walking alongside the ocean at Ambleside, North Vancouver, and I, I put my arm around her and I said, you know, it would be awful to be married to someone who's going to treat you like a princess, always looking out for your needs, constantly taking care of you. We laughed, and they are getting married. I remember one day I was reading in the Gospel of Luke, and I had to do a double take. As Jesus urges his disciples to live ready for his return, he tells them what will happen next. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now listen to this. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. You kidding me? This is amazing. God has already served us. I mean, he has washed our feet via the cross. In eternity, Jesus will serve us some more Given who he is, you can't make up a God like this. God is intentional. God is caring. God is one who serves. And the scene unfolds to reveal more. He is merciful and gracious. And through the meal, he is offering relationship. When you are in the most challenging spot in your life, you, you find out who is really with you. And when Jesus was taken by the Roman guards to be tried, beaten, and crucified, his disciples scattered. And, and Peter, as you probably know, Denied Jesus three times. Jesus would have every right to sever relationship from the disciples. And I would think, amidst the disciples' joy in seeing Jesus alive from the dead, they would also have had consternation. And for Peter, shame. You had boldly said that you would never deny Jesus, but you did. And you did. And you did. Where does that leave you? Jesus is risen! And I denied him. You know, personally, I'm no longer surprised when I talk to people and, and as the layers come off, how often woven into our stories are, are things we have done or said that we are now ashamed of. For many of us, this is a barrier to God. We think we've got to get our lives completely cleaned up before we can come to him. Sometimes we eliminate ourselves from the possibility of God ever using us in a significant way because of the way we've blown it. But look at what Jesus does with Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. People sometimes speak on this passage and draw attention to the different underlying Greek words for the word love here, extrapolating that to, to a deeper meaning. Jesus, do you love me? Coming from the word agape. Peter, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, from the love from the word phileo. Jesus, do you love, agape me? Peter, yes, Lord, you know that I love, phileo you. Jesus, do you love, phileo me? Peter, you know that I love, phileo you. Agape generally refers to a higher sacrificial love, and phileo is like a friendship love, but John's intent is probably not to show that Peter needs to graduate his love to a different kind of love. John uses the two words for love interchangeably elsewhere, and we are simply falsely forcing on an interpretation as smart as we may want it to make us look, but it's probably not actually there. The importance of what Jesus is doing is pretty clear. Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to address each one, nothing hidden. There is no animosity on Jesus' part. He is truthful, but gracious and merciful. And out of that mercy and grace, he restores. Restoring Peter to his calling as a follower of Christ. Yes, you failed me three times, but feed my lambs. Tend, my, tend feed, care. Tend my sheep. Watch over them. Feed my sheep. To love God, to love Jesus, is to love his people. Peter should know that Jesus trusts him to lead them again. And should Peter wonder if, if he has it within him to stay faithful in the midst of persecution, Jesus gives him a picture of how it will all end for him. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death. He was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow God, Peter. The God who is intentional, the God who is caring, the God who serves, the God who is merciful, the God who is gracious, the God who redeems, the God who restores. Now let's think about us. There are patterns among the disciples that we are probably just as guilty of. We tend to look to our own ability, as in Peter's, I will never deny you. And we make self-determinations that may not be what God has planned for us. I'm going fishing, and we fail. I fail. You fail. It's at this point that we today really need to hear the gospel and why we need to make it a regular rhythm to look at the story of God to rightly see God and, and also ourselves in relationship to him. God sees us worthy, worthy of his love, his sacrifice, his salvation, worthy of his intention and restoration. When you and I mess up, we are not beyond the forgiveness of God and a new start with him. Isn't it interesting that the two most prominent leaders in God's church at the start, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, are both redemption projects. Peter the denier, and Paul the persecutor, who called himself the chief of all sinners. God's leaders are not superheroes, and neither are we. 
but we are the objects of God's grace. In his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey describes a situation at a conference of comparative religions where they were discussing the unique contribution of the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis happened to enter the room and interjected, oh, that's easy, it's grace. And maybe you need to receive his grace again today. And don't we all? Forgiveness, affirmation of his love to us, his calling and purpose on our lives. The gospel is such good news because it is drenched in grace. There is unmerited favor from God in loving us and helping us to live. Grace to establish us in a new identity and grace to help us live that out. And that is the way to live. A rhythm of drawing upon the grace of God, relying on his strength and guidance and not your own. Theologian Raymond Brown said, never in the Gospels do the disciples catch a fish without Jesus' help. You know, there's only fruitful ministry and flourishing in life when Jesus is involved. And when Jesus is at work among us, the result is not scarcity, but abundance. In John's Gospel, there's wine at the wedding, there's the feeding of the multitudes, and here a bucket load of fish. What are you good at? Think about this, fishing is what Peter was best at. We can toil and we can work, we can plan and we can strategize, even in the things we are best at. But unless the Lord is in it with us, our work is futile. And this is why we must make room for God in our lives and be sure that what we are doing are the things that he has invited us into, even if we have to wait. Most likely, Jesus reestablished Peter's call in front of the other disciples as they were around the fire. They had scattered, and what Jesus was doing with Peter was instructive for them, as it is for us. Let's make things right and move on to God's mission. Live out your calling in Christ. In general, it is the same for all of us. Do you love me, Peter? Love on others. In the role I have for you, love on others. Peter may have been called to a specific responsibility to preach, teach, and oversee, but all of us are called to love. And we love on fellow followers of Jesus by sharing our gifts with one another, serving one another, honoring one another, caring for one another, encouraging one another, being there for one another, praying for one another. And as God has restored us to relationship with him, we love on those who don't have a relationship with Jesus by loving them in practical ways, but most supremely by sharing with them our Christian hope at the right time in an appropriate way. Peter will later write to believers, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Hey, as a church, we want to come alongside and help you to know how to do this well. You are strategically placed in family and neighborhood and work to share God's love with your life. Starting on Monday, April 25th, you can opt in to 40 Days of Developing Influence, which will equip you to pray for people who don't know God, to know how to explain and share your faith, to know how to better arrange your life, to have deeper friendships where spiritual dialogue can happen more and more. You can text GO to 833-312-6709 to opt in. And for more information, just go to our website, centralheights.ca slash 40 days. It would be in Galilee that Jesus would give his ultimate commission to Peter and all the others. As recorded in Matthew's gospel, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. This is where Jesus is. And when Jesus is in something, you can get up and try again. When Jesus is in something, the net is not torn. What you and I have, the resources in our hand will be sufficient. Receive from the God who is all the good things we have talked about today. And in his grace, let's go.